Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting startup founders share their stories and strategies. They also deliver tangible lessons learned along the way that you can apply to your own startup. Each episode is a true masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Danae Shell. Danae, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Thank you for having me, Kevin. So we've already had a had a little giggle before we uh, hit the big red record button and and kind of walked a path of of similar geography. So it, it's been good to connect with Danae. But if you and I met at like a networking event, Danae, how would you introduce yourself? Sure. I, first, I would tell you that I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Vala, which is a DIY legal platform for ordinary people to be able to resolve their legal issues. And we're launched in the UK and operating a waiting list for the US. And then I would probably tell you that I um, have a strange accent, which you picked <laughs> up on. <laughs> so I'm originally from Tennessee and I moved over to Scotland first to do my master's degree. And then I liked it so much, I decided to stay. And I've worked my entire career in um, the Scottish tech scene. So I'm um, working in all kinds of roles, both first as a software developer and then as a marketer and laterally as an executive in startups. And so, yeah, that's, um, that's kind of how I moved my way through the career. And then I met my co-founder, Kate, at one of those startups. And she and I were seeing a lot of issues with, um, you know, just bad treatment of employees at work, discrimination at work, all kinds of things like that. And um, it got us angry enough to hear the same stories over and over that we decided to dig into it and decided to create Vala. So it's interesting that just kind of the, the trajectory that's led you here. So, I mean, there's no, there's no pathway through law school that has, that has landed you in this space. This was just a, I, there's an itch out there we've got to scratch. And so how can we, how can we bring a tech solution or a, a, at least a back-end solution for the, for this, this problem. But is it, it's, it's interesting that I don't want to drill down too deep in this because I kind of want to hear your, your business trajectory story. That's what this is about, but it's, it's like, you know, it's, are you, are you trying to augment the HR process? Are you trying to solve a problem that they're not solving on their own? Is it, is it a, almost like a, like a, uh, adversarial relationship with HR departments? I mean, what's, where do you fit in that? I guess that scheme. Yeah. So the first, it really depends on now or next. So right now, what we essentially help people do is when they are in an adversarial process with HR, or if they can't get their employer to take their issue seriously, we help them put together, you know, the professional looking letters, the evidence timeline that they need, all the legal documents that they might need to actually be able to take that step of saying, no, this is important. I want you to look at this and I want you to negotiate with me to, you know, resolve the situation or settle with me because I've been unfairly dismissed or something like that. Mm -hmm. I could see a future absolutely where we end up actually helping the employers give a better process to people right. when they have a complaint at work. But we're starting just with the people who aren't getting taken seriously now. So obviously not the great employers, um, the ones who aren't taking seriously some of these you know, really important issues and they want to be able to kind of stand up better to those employers. So is the, um, I, I was trying to listen to you and hang on to my question at the same time. And I'm, I'm an old man. It's very difficult for me to, me to do that. But so 
is this more of a not-for-profit model right now, or is this a is it a for-profit model? What's what's kind of the business model that, that you've created? Yeah, absolutely. It's a we are a venture capital-backed business. We are definitely a for-profit business, and Kate and I believe really strongly in profit with purpose. So a lot of the work that we did when we were first designing Vala was figuring out how do we create a commercial model that fits within that, you know, that unicorn mindset, that massive scale mindset, that also, as we grow as a business financially and commercially, we also grow in the impact that we're creating. So we've, um, you know, we discarded a lot of business models really early on because when you kind of forecast it out into the future, we saw that's probably not going to stay aligned mm -hmm. with the impact that we're trying to have of empowering people to be able to resolve these situations themselves and, and you know, hold bad actors accountable, right. essentially. So, right. Yeah, the way that it works is um, people can use the platform for free to put together their, you know, materials to create that timeline of what happened. And when they actually want to take action, they can purchase the document or the letter that they want to generate. They can generate it online and then they can pay a little bit extra to have someone in the team do a peace of mind check, you know, mm -hmm. make sure that they've kind of got everything right. And eventually we'll layer on additional services like coaching, like tribunal coaching or court coaching. Right. And then eventually we'll layer on legal services. But yeah, that was starting... my next, see your answer to my next question already. So yeah. <laughs> Totally. I'll tell you, I'll tell you about that. So we're, we're starting at the bottom of affordability. So we're starting mm -hmm. with the people who can only afford, you know, just a generated document, right? Maybe 20 pounds, $20, something like that. They don't have any other available cash, but they do want to get this problem sorted. Then we're moving up into the people who can pay to generate the document. And then they want someone to check it over just to make sure that they haven't made any, you know, wild mistakes. Mm -hmm. Then we'll layer on that coaching ability so that as someone's going through this process, they have someone, you know, to discuss strategy with, to say, is this normal? Are they going to, you know, what's going to happen next? All that kind of stuff. And then for the people who can afford an hour of a lawyer's time, by then the platform will have generated so much tidy, nicely digestible information about their case that you can get a lot of value out of an hour of a lawyer's time. Right. Whereas right now, you know, if you just went to a lawyer cold and said, can I have an hour of your time to talk through this? At least 45 minutes is going to be just telling them what happened. Exactly. And they're trying to sort through everything. So that's, that's how very we're little strategy it. out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Have you, did you ever, ever look at, at the model? Uh, Cause when you first started, started outlining this, I mean, you know, my obvious question was, okay, so, I mean, obviously the heart behind this would want to say we, we can help virtually anybody that finds himself in this position. And then quickly you're thinking, okay, if it's a for-profit model, you're thinking, well, actually you could price, you could price out a, a large percentage of, of a market very quickly. Yeah. Then I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe what they've done is they've kind of like, almost like the, the, the recovery, you know, model that says, you know what we get, we'll, we'll take a third of whatever is recovered in, in a, a wrongful dismissal suit or harassment suit or whatever that, you know, against a, a company or an employer you know, that there's maybe a large award. And I'm thinking, you know, you a few of those and you could fund yourself, you know, pretty quickly. So was that in the, was that also in a, a possibility early in the discussions or is there a conflict that comes up? Comes that about was, that model? yeah, we, we thought about that model early on and, um, and we, we haven't discounted it, but when we, we play this game, right. Of let's fast forward 10 yeah. years in the future and it's a big company and, you know, 
maybe Kate and I, we, we play the game of like, okay, we've been hit by a bus or something. We're mm -hmm. not in the picture anymore. And there's a product manager there and they want to get their bonus. This is the, the game that we play. What number do they need to go up in order to get that bonus mm. in this commercial model? Yeah. And, um, and what we found was with contingency fees, like you're talking about there, we worried that the natural way that the model would drift would be towards the higher and higher value cases. Absolutely. Because they would be easier to acquire right. and they would take less work. And, and so you might thought, start cherry picking too, you know? To say, yeah, exactly. We're, we're exactly. going to take the ones we know we can win. Exactly. Yeah. So that was, and um, that was why we said, okay, let's not start there because we don't want to drift into that. Whereas if we, if we start at the, that bottom level of empowering people and build that into the DNA of the commercial model, we should get closer to the outcome that we're looking for. So another, another, like, I think just natural question as you're, you're kind of outlining the business model that, that just came to mind is that, so, you know, society is changing rapidly and mm. just with, you know, news and with protests and everything that is happening, you know, around us, it seems like to me that, um, and I, I, maybe this is aspirational instead of reality, but it seems aspirational to me that this problem is going to be less and less as we're moving forward, that there's, oh, yeah. there's less of the Luddites, there's less of the, you know, the type thing, the thinking that says, you know, well, you know, I say what I want to in the office space, cause I'm the owner of the company, or I can do what I want to, or I can treat employees like I want to, or whatever. And there's seems to be that even, even governmental regulations are come are put in place societal pressures are put in place, you know, next generation thinks different than previous generation anyway. So are you seeing that? I mean, is this a shrinking model moving forward? And but yet a great thing to happen because the problem's becoming less. I mean, what what do you forecast the next five or 10 years? I wish I thought it was shrinking, but I actually think it's going the other way. I think um, as I think there's a raw, there's a real war going on and it's a reaction and then a counter reaction. And I think a lot of people are entrenching in their kind of ideas, um, which means that a lot of people who might not have maybe 10, 15 years ago felt comfortable saying some things in public now feel comfortable and empowered to do it. And those things are often very negative. I think you can only, you know, you can have a look at um, the discourse going on in both America and the UK and the leaders that have been in America and the UK to see what is now acceptable to say. And mm. so I think a lot of people feel as if they have permission to do things and say things that they might not have felt permission to do before. And that has real world consequences on a lot of people. To me, it's never about offense. I don't think offense is the right way of thinking about it. To me, it's always about causing harm. And when we think about the law, that's what the law is designed to protect people from, because, you know, horrible things have an impact on people's careers, their confidence, their ability to actually yeah. just work on their job, their ability to be promoted because they're performing well. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's going away. And I think about, you know, our role in that as Vala and there are other people who are you know, focusing on prevention and helping people, you know, like DEI um, training and things like that. And we do training as well. We do something called discrimination first aid training, which is there to help people become better allies at work. If, you know, they have a colleague who's going through something like mm -hmm. this, help them help themselves. But we really see ourselves as if that's the carrot, we are the stick. We are there when it comes to 
accountability. And we really believe that our place in all of this is you can't get change in employment. You can't get change in society without creating some kind of accountability for harmful behavior. And we want to help people hold bad actors accountable. So that's that's kind of how we see ourselves in that that big kind of miasma that's happening in the world right now. It is uh, it is an interesting I mean, the way that you've kind of positioned or, or mentally positioned, you know, the, the service that you guys are providing. And um, I, it's interesting to, when I look back at, at um, the model itself. So are people reaching out to you? Are they finding you? Are you, are you doing kind of outbound marketing that says, hey, this service is available? What, what exactly? I mean, from a business model standpoint, how are you attracting, you know, future clients? Absolutely. Yeah, this is... Um... And a, a few different ways. So I'll answer your question by explaining a little bit about this process of what, mm -hmm. go, what people go through. Um, there's three key stages that they go through. And we, we find people or people find us at each of these stages in a different way. So at the very beginning of you know, something going bad at work, and we call it the is this legal stage because they're, they don't know what's happened. They just know something's bad happening. And you know, they often feel you know, nauseous before coming into work or really anxious or something like that. And often they can't label what's happened to them. And until they can label it, they can't do anything about it. And so a lot of the work that we do there is the kind of stuff, you know, I, I talk to people a lot. We do discrimination first aid, which is basically training their colleagues to help them label that problem. You're like, hey, that was not cool. I'm pretty sure that them not promoting you because you're pregnant is maternity discrimination. <laughs> That's a label that they can then Google basically. Right. So that's the first stage and we use um, kind of like, you know, PR and activism to, you know, tell people that we exist and that we could help at levels like that. My LinkedIn is uh, very opinionated because I'm telling people all the time about what they can do. The next stage is the, what are my options stage? Help me decide. And that's really where they've labeled the problem. And once they've labeled it, they can Google it. And once they Google it, they can find us. We have tons of information about walking people through the process of understanding their leverage and understanding their rights. And that's really the job that we help people do at that stage is to say, okay, you see a problem, you've put a label on it. What do you want? How do you want to get this resolved? And then what power do you have to actually get your employer to take this seriously and get mm -hmm. it resolved with you? Yep. What's, oh, so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, th I thought you'd, you'd pause there for a second. Go for it. No, I, no, I finished the stages. Absolutely. So we walk them through, okay, here are your five major options. Here are, you know, you have other options. We can talk through those, but let's talk through these main things that you can do. Here's how you do them. And you can usually get an issue resolved internally by going through mm -hmm. that second stage. Especially if, if there's a third party that has stepped in to kind of exactly. support that process. Yeah. Exactly. If we and we really the role that we take there is we level the playing field a little bit. We give them the research tools, we give them the access to documents, all the things that an employer might have so that when they come to their employer and they say, this is a really big deal and I need you to take it seriously. The employer looks and they're like, oh, we should take this seriously. <laughs> the mental picture so, is my bouncer just stepped out out from behind me and yes. he's over my shoulder right now. You're going, oh, I brought my friend with me to, to help me negotiate. So, yeah. That is exactly it. That is exactly it. 
And, and if that doesn't work still, then there's the get justice stage. Mm -hmm. And that's when it actually becomes legal and they need to take it to court or tribunal in the UK. And the key thing about that is we've built the platform in a way that it takes you all the way through the court process, all the way through those tribunals. We don't expect everyone to need that, but we do want everyone in those earlier stages to feel confident that if they did need it, they could because that's how you get that power and that leverage to negotiate. Yeah. So we find that people find us in each of those stages. You know, those people in the late stages, they're Googling specific court documents and they're like, oh my God, what is this? What do I have mm -hmm. to do about this? So they find us that way, or, you know, they hear about us um, through a law firm or a charity that we support. In those middle stages, it's often, again, they're searching for something or they're being referred by word of mouth or being referred by a charity or a partner. And in the early stages, generally, it's just that they have um, heard from a friend or heard from a podcast or a piece of news about this company that's helping people stand right. up for themselves. This, this may be, your answer may be a little anecdotal because it's still probably fairly early stage, but when you look at kind of the, the history that, that you've been involved in, that Vala's been involved in. How much of, of the cases that you guys have worked on or been involved in or looked at, how many times, maybe percentage-wise, was it just simply a, an unintentional error or an oversight, or maybe I, we just didn't know as, as HR or as a company is involved versus intentionality? So, I mean, like... Yeah. Do you understand the kind of the base of the question? I do. Because I could see both of those things come into play, at least early stage. It's so it's rarer than you think, but it's hard to pinpoint because what we generally see is almost the first act, the first thing that went wrong becomes less and less important over time because what carries on and how they deal with it often becomes the bigger problem. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, and so how they deal with it, like is generally, by the time it comes to us, generally very bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so yeah. we tend to interact with people who have employers who haven't dealt with an issue. Right. And, and often- someone makes a bad comment and, and whoa, whoa, I, I, I am terribly sorry. That was wrong. It was offensive. I have mea culpa you know, HR has already, you know, taken me behind the proverbial woodshed and, and we've had our little, our little moment and this will never happen again. Here's the, here's the process of, of going, you know, that I'm learning, you know, how I can handle this better type thing. That's a different situation than, you know, we've got a chronic, you know, kind of problem ongoing systemic, you know, thing or whatever. Yeah. It's, it is. And yeah. It's Absolutely that. And in many cases, because you brought this up, now we're going to actively punish you at work. That's mm. um, a lot of what we see, yeah. um, which is called victimization in the UK. So that, yeah, it's really, it's really down to how they deal with it rather than, you know, the first initial moment. Right. That's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, you're, you're answering questions before I'm answering now. You're, you're becoming very adept, but the, I, my question was like, often this is an adversarial relationship between employee and employer. So you know, that I, I think of the old adage that says, you know, I, we won the battle, but we lost the war, you know? Mm. So, I mean, I would think that that, you know, staying in that environment, even if you won the judgment or even if you got them to change or whatever the outcome, the remedy that you were seeking happens, it could still be a pretty toxic 
work situation, you know, to go, you know, go back to every day, even unintentionally. I mean, anytime that, you know, that you find yourself in an adversarial relationship with anybody for any reason, it's, it's more difficult to work together, you know, moving forward than it was historically. So do you often see that there, there almost has to be a change in employment regardless of the outcome? Yeah, we, we, uh, most of the people that we talk to are either already gone from the business or mm. leaving the business. Yeah. And what, they're, what we're helping them try and negotiate is, okay, you know, this has been going on for months. My, my mental health is destroyed. I'm physically exhausted. I, don't, I think it's going to take me three months to find another job. Can I negotiate a three-month settlement with me leaving mm-hmm. so that I can, you know, get some rest, make my peace with this, and then move on with my life? Um, that's typically the kind of stuff that we see. The, we do see some situations where they're still in the job and they're trying to hold on to it. And sometimes it does work. And it really does depend on who isn't playing ball within the organization. Yeah. Like, so if, if, you know, a wider part of the organization kind of steps in and says, oh, actually, we're going to figure this out, then, you know, you can salvage the relationship. Right. But- or we'll take bad actor out of the mix. Exactly. And allow you to stay, you know, in your, I mean, we've I've experienced that even in companies that I've been in. So, I mean, I, I understand that there are com- that companies, some companies, I mean, not all of them are bad guys out there. I mean, there's a, there are companies that are very proactive in, in trying to oh, protect yeah. their employees and, and uh, yeah, it, that I understand that, but so it's, it is um, so euphemistically as the UK refers to it as garden leave, you know, yes. I'm going to take, I'm going to take garden leave for the next three months. So I can, I, some hundred year throwback so I can go work in my garden. I think. But yeah. <laughs> it, interesting, uh, interesting way that they label that. But so I, I've got an interesting uh, question that um, I really like this question because it kind of just really digs into the heart of an entrepreneur, you know, and I think that's who we want it. We want it to interview startup founders, you know, primarily on this, on this podcast and have done it for, you know, four and a half years and had answers to this question all over the board. But mm. if you went to bed tonight, woke up tomorrow, world changed, Bala was no more. Yeah. What would you do for, you know, what, what's the, what's the next startup idea that you have in your mind that the gears are spinning? Oh, goodness. So one thing, so if the world had changed and Bala was no longer needed, um, This is such a strange answer, but I've always been really interested in the death industry. Um, Like death, death, like mortality. Oh wow, mortality. Yeah, you win. You're 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 the only one. (laughs) Two hundred fifty (laughs) episodes. You're the only one that says I love I love to I want to work in the death industry. (laughs) (laughs) It's I I find it fascinating, and um, my co-founder Kate and I have actually talked. We joke about this being our next startup. Um, Well. What's fascinating is in the UK, anyway, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, pretty much every single funeral home, every single mortician is all controlled by one company. Mm. 95% of the market is sewn up. And it makes for a very kind of cookie cutter, very, you know, um, uncreative, undiversified market. And I find it fascinating for such an important part of people's lives to have such a kind of a hegemony on it. And, mm. um, and so I've always been really interested in what a better 
death experience could be for individuals and what a better funeral experience could be for you know their loved ones and the people that they're um, they're leaving behind and it feels you know for me whatever i'm working on i i can't motivate myself to work on it unless i feel very passionate about it and i feel like it's really important and it's helping to cease some kind of pain yeah and you know obviously there's a lot of pain around um death and so yeah i i would start looking into the death industry <laughs> are you you're talking like hospice to hillside here are you i mean yeah okay yeah. so this Absolutely. isn't like tragic you know somebody no passed away. i mean i guess you would on the on the let's say the funeral side but you're on talking about preparing for that moment and for walking with the family into that and that that crisis moment and and then just ending well so that's interesting yeah and and then the the moments afterwards and i'll give you an example my my grandmother my beloved grandmother who um was the most important world person in the world to me she passed away last year late last year and um of cancer and we knew it was coming it had been coming for a couple of years when i found out she had been diagnosed actually i, I quit my job and um the first few months of vala was me doing desk research from Tennessee, where I was mm. fishing with her during the daytime to, you know, just spend time with her. Right. And when it came time um, for her to go into hospice and things, I flew home and spent six weeks whilst working in the mornings, then helping with her care, her um, kind of end of life care with the rest of my family. And I was determined to help her have a good death and you know bring you know as much love and support as i could to that process and and i got a first hand experience of what hospice care looks like and you know some of the good things and the bad things surrounding mm -hmm. it and it it just seems to me like you know a, a, an area that could have a lot more attention given to it <laughs> yeah so that it's funny the last interview i did a couple of weeks ago it was a was a tech startup founder and I asked him this question. I said, how did you even get in the entrepreneurial space? What, what was kind of the initial draw? And he said, I felt like I could do it better. Yes. And it was exact that that's the aha moment you had looking at hospice and you know, that you're yeah. thinking, I, I just feel like I do it better. And you know, it, it same with an Bala. area that needs to be improved, you know? Yeah. The same with Vala. And, and the second, the follow-up to that with Vala is I feel like I can do it better and somebody's got to do it somebody has got yeah. to do it and that's yeah, that that's, that's a great that's a great add-on there that's a, that's exactly right because just because it i can do it better and, and i take no action you know yeah. you're just a dreamer <laughs> yeah but somebody's got to do this why mm -hmm. not me yeah like yeah so if if uh you know i, I don't know when when did vala start when, when was it launched uh we we came out of our open beta just a couple of months ago and we started building uh, the platform kind of last summer and the idea was uh, summer 2019 so we've been going nearly three years and i mean right in the midst of covid so i mean that you had that impact as well but so have you did you lead any startups did you lead any businesses anything prior to that as as a founder as a ceo as a president you know whatever that title managing director whatever that title is so I um I created I founded my own company at the early days of blogging called Knickers, which was a lingerie blog. It was kind of like a luxury lingerie. That is blog. very British. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I ended up accidentally turning it into like this because it was really just a hobby that started out because I was curious about blogging, curious about online advertising. This was early days, and um, accidentally created this like the 
the number one lingerie blog in the in the world for wow. about five years and um learned a lot learned a lot from that yeah and then um I co-founded a consultancy when I was still in university like a web design consultancy mm-hmm. and my co-founder Kate she's um had a couple other businesses yeah well see that just leads right into the kind of the next question because a lot of a lot of our listeners are people they're sitting in the cube they're in the cube farm they're thinking I I, I want to do something better you know I I've not only do I want to change my circumstance, but I feel like that I have this itch, you know, within me to yeah. start something, but I just want to kind of draw from the experience and the, and the talent that we have on this show to pass on just like a couple of just really short, very concise, just golden nuggets to, you know, for mm-hmm. them to find, to be mined out of this interview. So what would you, what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you started these other ventures or even started Vala that that you think would be very helpful and pretty industry agnostic. Um, mm. But just, you know, what are, what are one or two things that you think would be very helpful for a founder as they're getting started that you think are crucial just for success? The first thing I would say is find or create a peer mentorship group. Mm. I think they're so critical and um, often they're called masterminds. Mm-hmm. And I have a mastermind with two other CEOs. We meet every Friday morning at 8am. So I just had my mastermind this morning. And it was, it's always, um, it's always so valuable to me. And it's running a business, whether you have other founders or not is a lonely thing. And having people who are going through the same thing as you at the same time, to help hold you accountable, to help support you, to help, you know, bounce ideas off of is, is critical. So definitely that. And preferably not direct competitors, because then you would yeah. each hold stuff back. We're going to yeah. hold back IP in our discussions, right? Yeah, my mastermind is with a crypto company founder and a events um, software company founder. So completely different industries. Right. But because we're in similar stages of our business at the same kind of job, then you know there's so much that we can kind of learn and share with yep. each other. Similar issues, yeah. What else? Definitely that. Um, The other thing that I would say to someone who's just starting out is the world will start to feel very overwhelming when you start creating a business and trying to grow it. And you will constantly be asking yourself, am I doing the right thing? How do I even think about this, et cetera? And my big hack for that is I always look for a framework to apply to the problem that I'm trying to solve in that moment. So I'll give you an example. If you're really struggling with your marketing planning or distribution or something like that, then the um, value proposition canvas, Mm -hmm. which is a fantastic book and a fantastic canvas is super valuable. If you're thinking about, you know, market positioning and how you position yourself, April Dunford's positioning canvas from her book, obviously awesome, is incredible as a framework to kind of work through that step by step. Blue ocean strategy, when you're thinking about Mm -hmm. um, overall strategic kind of like, what market should I be going after? There's, I find there's a framework for everything. And I collect them. I'm like a magpie. I just collect frameworks all the time because they really help me when I'm feeling overwhelmed by the size and the scale of the problem that I'm looking at to just put it into manageable chunks. So I would say start your collection of frameworks and, you know, be able to pull them out when you need them, because otherwise it can really feel like, you know, it's just you against the world, if that makes sense. And it's a, it's a consistent process that you can use to, to, you know, compare alternatives, 
you know, I yes. mean, it is a, it's a measurable, you know, process. I'm thinking, you're thinking of like Eric Reese with the, you know, the lean canvas. Yes. Uh, I think that's a, all those are tools, you know, that, that, uh, you know, the, even the sales funnel, you know, as you're looking through that, you're thinking, okay, what are the different layers that, that people, we want people to go through and are, will this tool fit? Will it, will it solve the, the problems of those different layers? But yeah, that's, that's, a, that is great advice. I think both of those are, are really salient, um, you know, tips for regardless of what, whatever you're in. I mean, it's, it is a way because it can be overwhelming I and mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it, matter of fact, oftentimes is, and if you, yeah. if you have a, trusted system that you can kind of fall back on and and utilize when it when it becomes overwhelming then you kind of take your eyes off the, the big elephant and you just you know looking back at okay what are, what are you actually just trying to solve what's the smaller problem that we're trying to solve that's that's a little more manageable so anything yeah, that go ahead i would just add to that it it helps you as well if you don't yet have a framework asking yourself how might I use a framework to solve this For makes sure. that so much of an easier job to do. It's not like, how do I solve this problem? The question is just, how do I find a framework to help me solve this problem? Mm -hmm. So much of an easier problem to solve. <laughs> and as you're sharing with a co-founder or you're sharing with even employees about why the decision was made, I mean, you have, it's not like I, my gut just felt like this is the right thing to do. You know, that, that's a little harder to explain. I know here's the process we went through to arrive at this, and this is why we're going to do this. So yeah, it's, that is great advice, but anything that we haven't touched on, you just want to close this out with today and then, you know, please just share where, where the best place to find you online and connect with you. Yeah. So one last thing I'd love to share for anyone who's starting out is um, something that we try to do so hard at Vala. And I think we've succeeded so far is to fall in love with the problem and not the solution. Mm -hmm. And I, I would leave that as a parting piece of advice. Um, Kate and I are both software developers. We could have built a solution at any point in the first two years of Vala, but we held back um, and didn't really invest a lot of time in anything until we really knew that the market was pulling us towards a certain solution. And that is a um, really hard thing to do, but it's so valuable as a business owner. And in terms of where to find us, if you're in the UK, you can go to vala.uk and you can use the platform and start generating your documents straight away. It's V-A-L-L-A. -L -L -A. And if you're in the US, you can go to vala.law and you can join the wait list and tell us, um, you know, you would like us to come to you and we will use that as the market pulling us right. and use that to help us know, you know, when should we be launching in the States? What kind of problems do people have, et cetera? Well, Danae, thank you again for just taking time today and, and just sharing the story of Vala and, and just so many other things that we had a chance to, to share in this last 30 minutes or so. But I really appreciate the uh, just kind of the heart behind, you know, the effort as well and and the way that you've, you've shared that and decided we want to we want to solve this, but we want to do this with a purpose you know, in mind, it's purpose-driven, you know, solutions here, but really just doing what you're doing and playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Then I have a great weekend. Thank you so much, Kevin. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.